So first let me apologize that I didn't get this episode out sooner. You're going to notice that the audio in spots is kind of rough, and that's due to some bad internet connections. So I was really working this audio over trying to clean it up as best as I could, and that's why it's a few days late. However, despite some rough patches, this episode is one of the most important I think I've done to date. On this episode, I have on Moroni Jessup. Now normally, this is the spot in the show where I tell everyone a little bit about my guest, but let's be honest, it's Moroni Jessup. Everyone in fundamentalism knows who he is. Anyway, he came on and we talked about the history of and the changes that were made to the temple ordinances. Now, about the last half hour of this interview, Moroni and I end up talking about some pretty controversial topics. I'm sure the last segment of this podcast will end up ruffling some feathers. In fact, this may turn some folks off to the podcast entirely. Now, I hope this doesn't happen, but I told you, the listener, early on that I was going to be truthful with you in my search for truth and authenticity. I have counted the cost of releasing this episode, and know this may cost me, but to stay true to who I am, I feel like it's something that had to happen. So buckle up, because that's next on this edition of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. Well, Moroni, I'll tell you what, man. I can't appreciate you enough being on. I mean, I followed you for years on Facebook and and listened to some of your talks, and they were some of the best. And I feel like in some ways you're a guy that's near and dear to my heart, right? Because I'm a little unconventional like you are, right? I'm going to... I'm going to drop the the swear word and I'm going to be, you know, a little rebellious at times. And it works out really well that uh, that you're on. And I'm just super stoked that you're here. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm I'm really glad you invited me. And uh, I'm always surprised when I hear that people have followed stuff that I do, because, you know, a lot of times it doesn't feel like people are listening or hearing the things I have to say. So I always appreciate hearing that people are hearing. Uh, you know, some of the podcasts I've done, some of the posts I've made. And, and of course, you know, I knew who you were. So uh, I felt very fortunate that uh, I got an invite from you to be on here. Well, I, I sure appreciate that. So as I reached out to you before and, and, and brought up the subject of, of, of the temple and the temple changes and, and the, the changes to those ordinances, I couldn't think of a better guy to do it because Look, I'm just going to shoot you straight. All the stuff you do is pretty well thought out. So I feel like like you were the perfect guy for this this episode. So well, thank you. I'm not sure that what I'm going to say is very well thought out, but uh, I'll give it a shot. I think you're going to do great. So real quick, give us just kind of a, a, a brief history, if you will, on, on the ter- temple ceremony from like Joseph Smith to Brigham Young. 
Okay, so um, first of all, you know, if you're going to talk about temple ordinances, you, you have to start with Kirtland. And, uh, you know, um, but uh, things really weren't developed then. Well, you have to go back even further. You have to go back to Sidney Rigdon. Sydney, uh, Sydney Rigdon, uh, you know, came from the Campbellite movement. And, uh, you know, they quoted the scriptures. They talked about receiving an endowment from on high. Uh, but Sidney Rignan at that time was referring more to like uh, like a uh, confirmation uh, that you receive after baptism. For him, that was the endowment uh, that you receive. And for some uh, restorationist organizations, like the Community of Christ, that's still the endowment. You're endowed from on high. But uh, Joseph Smith, you know, it's... Uh, it's uh, recorded in some of the early uh, Doctrine and Covenants sections, like I think 43 or 44, that they were supposed to build the temple in Kirtland. And when they were uh, they were to build the temple in Kirtland, then the Lord would provide a greater endowment than what they had previously received. Okay, and let me so, stop you. Can I stop you there for a second? Because I'm going to ask you some questions here about, in your estimation, you're talking about Sidney Rigdon and the Campbellites and being endowed with power from on high. Is that is that something that we carry forward as Mormons now, or are they? Because because you hear that a lot, but in 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 that time frame, the the 1830s and 40s, are they talking about something different than the temple ceremony? Yeah, there. Uh, I mean, it it definitely evolved into something greater, but uh, I think that. Uh, Sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we're a little dismissive of the power of the confirmation that uh, that we are supposed to, we're given the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, when we're confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, you know, uh, I think that we shouldn't ever downplay the importance of that as being part of uh, an initiatory process, I guess you should say. My dad used to say that, uh, that uh, the endowment incurs in increments. That uh, you know, uh, starting from starting from the basic all the way to the highest ordinances of the temple, you know, it, it's all one endowment. It's not it's not necessarily codified into smaller pieces. It's all part of one big uh, mass endowment, I guess you could say. And I, I think that like Orson Pratt bears me out on that. Uh, um, I read in Times and Seasons where Orson Pratt defined the sealing keys of Elijah as uh, the authority for any man to perform any priesthood ordinance from the beginning, from baptism, all the way to the highest ordinances. Those are all, all that's what encompasses the sealing keys of Elijah. And, uh, you know, when you look at it in kind of that kind of holistic perspective, then Doctrine and Covenants section two makes a little more sense, where it says that, you know, behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by Elijah, that will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be utterly wasted at his coming. So in essence, every, the, the keys for every single ordinance have to be actively engaged upon this earth at the time of the second coming. Otherwise, as it says in the scriptures, this whole world will be wasted. So, uh, you know, uh, the pre, I guess, you know, people refer to what happened in Kirtland as like a pre-endowment, but uh, it was a vital and an integral part of what was to come, say, in 
in uh, Nauvoo and and beyond that. But uh, Kirtland is where they began doing the washing of feet, um, which was uh, a vital part of the endowment process. You know, one that uh, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know that much about anymore. But, uh, you know, that was for uh, the cleansing of the blood and sins of this generation. And that was one of the first temple endowments, something that incurred, occurred right inside of the temple. And, of course, you have uh, later leaders like uh, Joseph uh, Fielding Smith, who wrote in, uh, I think, what was it, A Work in a Wonder, where he uh, talks about uh, that the purpose of the Kirtland Temple was to establish a holy place where beings from heaven could come and deli- deliver further keys unto Joseph. Because we know, we know at this point that he didn't have all the authority to perform all the ordinances that had to come in increments. Okay, so when when Sidney Rigdon talks about uh, being endowed with power from on high, does he have the idea of temple work going on, or is he talking about something different? I don't think he had a clue. <laughs> okay, but for that matter, I don't think Joseph did either. No, but Joseph no. knew enough to know that there was more coming. Okay. In fact, he he said that on several occasions that there was more that was going that, that was coming after that. So, uh, but I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think Joseph had it in his mind yet what was going to take place in the endowment ceremony in the years to come. Okay. So how would you classify then the Kirtland Temple? What, in your mind, what was the Kirtland Temple? Because they're not performing full, full, you know, endowment sessions or, or ceilings or those sorts of things. They're, they're doing, they're doing a type in the shadow, if I'm understanding you correctly. With, it's like a precursor. Okay, with washing feet. Okay, so so that's definitely kind of a precursor. Yes. Okay. In my estimation, it is. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably pretty accurate, right? Because you you're seeing a a place where, a place where you can congregate with with the entire congregation, and then performing some other ordinances. So it, I, that definitely holds water, so to speak, that that it was a preparatory kind of temple. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, we know the troubles that happened in Kirtland, and uh, they wound up losing access to that particular temple. And I've, I've often wondered what would have happened in the Kirtland temple if, uh, if they had been able to keep it. You know, I, I wonder if we would have seen the involvement uh, the, the, Evolvement of the endowment further inside of the Kirtland Temple, but of course we'll never know because then you know they had financial problems in Kirtland. They had the 1838 Mormon War in Missouri, and uh, it wasn't I think until they were driven out of Missouri and relocated in Nauvoo that they started thinking. You know they had a little period of peace there where they started thinking about temple work again and started construction of the Nauvoo Temple. And, uh, of course, you know, the Nauvoo Temple had another precursor, which was the red brick store. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people have heard of that, that uh, Joseph started administering washing of the feet and other ordinances. Um, he uh, he uh, had uh, joined, uh, you know, the Freemasons, 
and had been exposed to some of those ideas and gradually started introducing his own version of Freemasonry in the upper, upper uh, floor of the, of the uh, red brick store and uh, did washing of feet, started the second anointings. You know, all of those things had uh, started to flesh out a little bit in the in the in Nauvoo in the red brick store. So real quick, I want to go back. Want to go back to something with um, that you said just a few minutes ago about um, the the red brick store era. He's not performing full endowments up there or is he? Well, he he was in. Uh... He was uh, introducing washings and anointings. Well, they, they I have to go back. They did washings and anointings in the Kirtland Temple, too. But he continued the custom of uh, washings and anointings in the Red Brick Store. He also introduced uh, signs, tokens, and penalties. So it was starting to kind of flesh out, you know. Uh, I don't think it was until the actual Nauvoo ceremony in the temple that we started seeing uh, something that resembles the endowment that we have today. But uh, yeah, one interesting thing I always read from the times I was a kid, how they would, uh, how they would uh, anoint themselves. They would wash and anoint themselves with like things like whiskey. Right. Can you, can you imagine that? Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds funny to us today because of, of kind of the, uh, the, the time that we're in. Right. But yeah. as you look at it, it makes it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because look, hygiene isn't wasn't as great back then as it was today, right? I mean, you may not take a bath all winter. And so <laughs> if you're going to someplace holy, you better be clean, right? And right. And, and so yeah, it, it sounds funny until you put it into historical context and it makes kind of sense. I want to ask you about something else because cause you brought up another point that, that I want to kind of flesh out here a little bit. And that is the okay. link between the, the temple ceremony and masonry. What is your understanding of of how that process comes to be? Because I think I think if if we're fair and if we're honest, we have to say that that had some sort of impact on Joseph that kind of started those wheels turning, right? Yeah. Of course, when I, when I tell uh, when I explain things, I always have to give like an anecdote. Right. So no, no, uh, it's good. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, so I, I, when I was young, I was a, I was an exchange student in Belgium, and uh, the family that I stayed with, uh, my host family, they were Freemasons, and when I was there, uh, I had no idea what Freemasons were, but uh, I went to a lot of Freemason gatherings. I went to like picnics with the local Masons in the Ardennes forest and things like that. But uh, one night. Uh, the father of the host family that I was staying with um, took me aside and, he, you know, in broken English and, you know, I spoke broken French, he spoke broken English. And, but between the two of us, we were able to communicate. And uh, he, he said, you know, he says, I noticed that uh, when people are asking you if you are Mormon, that uh, you're hesitating. And uh, of course I was because everyone in Belgium, when they found out I was Mormon, uh, and, you know, I'm only like 18 years old. They're trying to give me the word of wisdom test by offering me wine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I started getting annoyed by, you know, when every time somebody was asking me if I was Mormon because I knew they were going to offer me alcohol. And then so uh, so uh, he says, you know, I noticed that you're 
hesitating when people are asking you if you're Mormon. He says, you need to be proud that you're Mormon. And then he said, me, Freemason, you, Mormon. Uh, and then he goes, Freemason, respect Mormon. And uh, of course, that didn't mean anything to me at 18 years old, but obviously he knew that there was a connection. So, so he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, trying to express an affinity towards me because we believed in something similar. That's awesome. And then, uh, now you, but you were, you're not just Mormon. You were, if I'm not mistaken, you were raised in fundamentalism, right? No, no, oh, I no, was actually weren't. raised in the LDS church. Okay. I apologize. So, uh, uh, just to, just to clarify a little bit about my family. So, uh, um, my great grandfather was one of the founding members of the fundamentalist organization. He lived with Lauren Woolley as a ranch hand. And so he was involved in the, in the movement right from the beginning. But, uh, my grandmother, uh, took my grandfather back to the church. She didn't, she wasn't having any of this fundamentalist stuff. And so they went back to the church and, uh, then, uh, he instructed my dad on a lot of fundamentalist principles, okay. but my dad grew up in the church. He served a mission for the church, but his dad died when he was 14 before he was able to find out very much about his fundamentalist background. And, uh, my dad was just told by my grandmother and my grandmother's family that polygamists were lecherous old men and that they were evil. And, uh, my dad, being a super missionary, when he started going to BYU, came across some of his Jessup relatives that he had never met before. And uh, being the super missionary that he was, he decided to try to prove them wrong. And he started spending all of his time out of class in the special collections section of BYU library. And he became converted there. <laughs> so, uh, so at age 20, when I was 20, uh, you know, my dad basically for years got chewed out by the church and was told to stay quiet and everything. But uh, when I was 20, uh, the whole family got excommunicated. Um, we had somebody in our ward who was kind of high up and in cahoots and, you know, on really good terms with the general authorities. And he wasn't having any of this quasi fundamentalist stuff in his ward. So. He requested from Salt Lake to have every one of us excommunicated. And uh, we were all cut off all the way down to my 13-year-old sister. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, of course, from there, we all became fundamentalists. We were in the AUB for about five years. And then most of the time after that, we spent as independents. And, uh, but anyway. It must have been tough, uh, so, dude. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been tough. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more later. <laughs> right but uh anyway uh so uh then uh when i was uh we grew up in arizona and uh when i was 20 years old i decided after my excommunication i decided to move to um to uh salt lake to be closer to other fundamentalists and uh i was going to salt lake community college and um I decided to attend institute classes. So I was attending institute and, uh, there was this guy that was like, obviously, I mean, I didn't know then, but he was obviously an ex-Mormon, an ex-Mormon. And uh, he would argue with the seminary teacher or the institute teacher at every opportunity he could. And 
finally, uh, I wasn't getting the textbook answers. And so he leaned over and one day and he said, he said, uh, what kind of Mormon are you? And I said, I'm a Mormon fundamentalist. And he goes, oh. And I remember specifically, there was somebody sitting by me who picked up their books and moved across the room from me. <laughs> and, uh, they don't want and, to be uh, catching that virus. Uh, and then halfway through class, this, uh, this guy goes, I just realized what a fundamentalist is. And so after class, he wanted to talk to me. And uh, so we're talking and he said, you know, he said, uh, Joseph Smith got the idea for the temple ceremony from the Freemasons, from the Masons. And, uh, you know, me not knowing what a Mason is, I'm thinking like brick Masons. He got the idea to build a temple from brick Masons. You know, I'm like, it didn't make sense to me. So it wasn't later. It wasn't until after I was endowed that I realized uh, that uh, the endowment is indeed connected to Freemasonry. And uh, so I started to study from that point on. I started studying everything I could about Freemasonry, short of becoming a Mason myself. I'm not a Mason myself, but uh, but I have several friends who are. I've uh, studied a lot of their uh, rituals and traditions, and there is a definite connection between the endowment and Freemasonry. I mean, it's it's evident to anybody who studies it. And, uh, you know, uh, people like uh, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball were the, of the opinion that uh, the endowment is true Freemasonry and that uh, Freemasonry was simply an archetype of a much older tradition from which our endowment descends and is the spiritual heir of that particular tradition. Cool. Real quick, um, you're you're breaking up a little bit. You want to try and maybe put that mic back on, or yeah, let me see. I, I can't you, say you breaking up. It's kind of gurgly. Yeah, I had the problem last time I did this. Okay. And uh, I'm going to turn it on, and you just tell me if it if it sounds clearer. Well, you sound fine at times, and at other times it just goes gurgly. Sound good? I don't think it's on quite yet. <laughs> yeah, see there you were just gurgly. Okay, let me see here. Let me connect my Bluetooth. I'm so sorry, I'm man. So sorry. Oh, that's all right. So how much of it did you miss? <laughs> Not much. Not much. You can get the... We get 99% of it. It's just every once in a while it just goes gargly. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, not connecting for some reason. But uh, I mean, we can continue, and I can try to fiddle this with this while while we talk. Okay. So, do you get the sense that that Joseph sees the the Masonic ceremony, and then he starts receiving revelation? Is that kind of what what you? as you've been able to piece it together, is that kind of what you sense? I would, I would say so. Uh, because I mean, we're talking like he started introducing elements of, uh, of, uh, the endowment, uh, like the signs and tokens. Uh, he started, uh, he started, uh, introducing those within four weeks of becoming a Mason. 
But there were others, like his brother Hiram, who had been a Mason for years. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I've I've heard, uh, I've read other books that say that, that uh, and I don't know, uh, this is just speculation, but that, that uh, Joseph's family um, had a connection to, like, the Rosicrucians. And I don't, I don't know. I've never seen any evidence of that, but there's, there's, uh, I've read a whole book that was making that argument before. You know, I think a lot of times people think that when they find out that there is, you know, some similarities between, like, the Temple Endowment and then Masonry, I think people automatically jump to the conclusion that, oh, Joseph Smith ripped this off from the Masons, so to speak. And yeah, I, I've, I've heard that. Uh, I've heard that argument. And uh, that really doesn't mean when people make that argument, that doesn't really mean that much to me. No. Because, uh, because you know, so what if the Lord directed him to that? You know, it. Uh, he wasn't plagiarizing anything in my book. You know, no. like a lot of no, I don't think he was. And and realistically, and and you could probably speak to this more than I could, but but uh, there was a quote that I had read years ago or heard years ago back in the know your religion days in the LDS church if you remember those. And yeah. uh which was that Joseph had made some sort of statement about, you know, the Masonic ceremonies were were somewhat corrupted but they had some sort of line and if you follow you know masonry back it doesn't have a real firm start date i mean there's people who make assumptions but it it's an old old system um yeah and and so if 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 that was the case if if there was something you know echoes of the past so to speak right well if joseph's a seer which we all raise our hands to the square and, and attest that he is, we would see, we would expect to see that him being able to lean back and kind of be directed by the spirit and revelation and say, oh, wait a second, there's more to this, right? So I, I think, I'll just speak for myself, I think it's an intellectual, intellectually a lazy way of explaining some of those similarities between masonry and the endowment, right? I don't think yeah. there's a lot of thought given there. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of Masons and Mormon Masons who have argued that, you know, well, uh, you know, this, uh, this, uh, you know, Masonry started, you know, in the early 1700s. But if you talk to anybody who's studied multiple esoteric traditions, there's elements of masonry that are a lot older than the early 1700s. And that's that's undeniable. There's elements in there that are much, much older. Now, uh, I I don't know. I don't know personally that it goes all the way back to Solomon's Temple, like Brigham Young claimed, but it certainly goes back a lot further than, than uh, you know, early 1700s in Scotland or wherever, you know. Right. It's there's so much older things in masonry. And so so uh, whether these things were passed on uh, to Joseph Smith uh, through his family or through the Freemasons, obviously, he recognized something of value in there. And uh, was he directed by the Lord? I, I believe so. And uh, and, 
And so I don't have any problem with there being a connection to Freemasonry yeah. at all. I don't either. So we, we, so we kind of veered off on a tangent there. We were in Nauvoo. Joseph's in the red brick store. He's starting to um, do the washing of feet there again. Yes. Let's continue with that progression, because I think it's in Nauvoo that we see a real crystallization of, of something that today we as Mormons would recognize as the endowment. Yeah, and uh, I mean, right from the get-go, he's, he takes nine men and performs the um, second anointing on them as well on the Red Brick store. Basically, he uh, washes them and then anoints them to not just become kings and priests, but to be kings and priests. And uh, shortly after, um, shortly after he um, anoints these men, then he does the same thing, like within days, for their wives, and seals the wives to these men as uh, queens and priestesses as well. So you know, we start to see a lot of stuff starting to take shape. You know, at this time period before the temple is built. So, and I believe it's during this time as well that that the concept of of baptisms for the dead come forward, right? Yes, the first baptisms for the dead took place actually in the Nauvoo Temple. So uh, they don't—they're not at this point. They're not doing full-on endowments for the dead. That doesn't take place until Saint George, Utah. But we're seeing definitely the concept starting to evolve, and. Uh, then, of course, you know, Joseph Smith was martyred in uh, 1844. We just passed the 178th uh, anniversary of his death two days ago. And uh, after that, the Nauvoo uh, Temple is being completed. And before they complete it, they uh, start doing endowments on in the attic. They partition off the room with curtains. And they have, like, one section... Uh, devoted to be the, the garden room, the other one to be the, the telestial room, and they decorate it with plants and everything. And uh, I think it's kind of funny, you know, that uh, uh, I've been in endowment ceremonies that are kind of uh, set up, uh, you know, temporarily like that with sheets hanging across rooms and everything, you know. Uh, but uh, so that's what they're doing. They, they, start, uh, they start performing endowments. And uh, at this time, you know, shortly after the dedication, they are being driven out of Nauvoo. Brigham Young is getting ready to leave, and uh, but there are there are a lot of people there at the temple who are petitioning for their endowments, and so Brigham Young delays leaving for uh, Utah that year by two weeks, and they are working in the temple round the clock doing endowments. Brigham Young is documenting in his journal that he's doing endowments until three 30 in the morning. And, uh, they did like 5,500 endowments Whew. in that two week period. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, they're, they're busy. And, uh, but you know, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the Nauvoo temple period because it's, you know, uh, we don't really have any written scripts of what they were doing. The only thing, the closest that we have are, uh, are, uh, journals of people who described in detail what they went through, what they experienced when they went through uh, through the endowment. By then, they are doing 
the passion play, so to speak, of Adam and Eve, kind of like what we do in our endowment now. But uh, it's not scripted. You know, they have basic things that they do. They, you know, they introduce the, the, the robes of the priesthood. They introduce the signs, tokens, and penalties. But uh, it's, it's extemporaneous. You know, there, uh, it differs from session to session. You know, and I always used to wonder, you know, why, why don't we have any written accounts, you know, written scripts of the Navi Temple? Because there was none. They were, they were winging it. They were like ad-libbing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you could have uh, Lucifer saying completely different things during one session as opposed to, uh, to another one. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until they got to Utah that the endowment became codified. And uh, so they, uh, the temple workers used to just pass down the endowment by oral tradition from worker to worker. And uh, when uh, Brigham Young codified the endowment, they were basically trying to remember and write down what they had done in Nauvoo previously. So, uh, you know, I remember there's one account that uh, whoever was playing Lucifer during a particular session was so scary in the way that he portrayed Lucifer that he had uh, he had people quaking in their shoes. He, they were so afraid of him. He was so realistic in his portrayal. And I kind of like that because I'm like a drama nerd. And the right. fact that they were actually acting, you know, <laughs> um, you know, as a fundamentalist, a lot of the endowment, it drives me bananas. At, at one point, I don't anymore, but at one point I used to have the endowment memorized front to back, totally memorized. And, uh, you know, we'd have endowment sessions and our temple workers are reading. They have a note, white notebook in their hand as they're going from room to room, reading their parts instead of memorizing them. And that used to just drive me nuts. And the other thing is that they, uh, they uh, would uh, portray their parts without any degree of emotion or passion. And uh, the thing is, is that the endowment is a passion play. And so if it, there, it's a passion play, there needs to be passion in it somewhere. So, uh, you know, I really appreciated reading that story that, you know, that uh, this Lucifer was so authentic in his performance that he scared people. <laughs> and I think that's something that is super cool to know, right? Because I think whether you're coming from an LDS background, or whether you're coming uh, even from a fundamentalist background, these today it's it's very regimented and codified in how it's done, which can be a good thing too, right? Because I mean it's it's designed in such a way that that it makes you know makes sense, so to speak, right? So I'm sure yeah. the, the ad libbing portion of that you could get off on some pretty strange tangents, but yeah. At the same time, like you're saying, you're losing a little bit, right? I I don't know. That that's that's some of the thoughts I have. So, real quick, Joseph knows he's gonna die, right? I mean, I think we all yeah. know that. And he gives Brigham Young a very specific charge, right? Yes, he does. And, and he, what was uh, that charge? Well, he commissioned him to be the one to. He said that, in essence, I'm paraphrasing. He said, the endowment isn't perfect the way we have it now. He says, but I'm leaving it up to you to perfect it, you know, to do whatever you need to to perfect it. So he gave Brigham the commission to, uh, to, um, 
you know, complete the endowment, in other words, you know. So uh, when this, so the saints go to Utah and, uh, you know, they start building the temples over there. They're specifically working on the St. George Temple. And uh, Brigham Young oversees a team of writers who actually uh, write the endowment down in a specific manner. And uh, I want to go into a little story as to why this is important. So, um, so uh, uh, I, I went through a couple of endowments while I was visiting a particular fundamentalist community, and I'm not going to stay which one, <laughs> right? Because I respect them, and I don't want to. I don't want to disparage what they're doing. But uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I have the endowment. I used to have the endowment memorized frontwards and backwards, and so. Uh, I go to this endowment ceremony and uh, it's all mixed up. Everything in the endowment is there, but it's out of order the way they presented it. And it kind of, for somebody who's kind of like slightly OCD like me, it was grating on me to have the endowment all mixed up. And this line moved over here, that part moved over here, things moved out of order. And, uh, and uh, what they were claiming was that um, they had the the Manti version of the endowment. That the version in Manti was a little bit different than the one in Salt Lake. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, honestly, what I thought, that the, some of the people in that community had come from uh, Jim Harmson's group, the TLC. Okay, gotcha. And I was, I still don't know for sure, but I was willing to bet that they got their version of the endowment from Jim Harmson. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, but they were saying, oh, what do you think of our endowment? It flows better, doesn't it? It flows better. And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't flow better at all. And so uh, I did research and um, I found uh, some pioneer journals where, uh, you know, we're talking like around 1894, there was a man in the church who recorded in his journal that he attended endowments in St. George, Salt Lake, Logan, and uh, Manti. And he testified that all of them were the same ordinance that was done in the Salt Lake temple. That, uh, so to me, that was evidence that this endowment that I went through was, um, was one of Jim Hall's Harmson's alterations. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Brigham Young uh, commissioned people, specifically L. John Nuttall, to start writing the endowment out because he wanted a singular ordinance for all of the temples because he was afraid that one temple might decide to pervert the endowment. So he wanted something uniform for each temple. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I think the words that Joseph used to Brigham was, you know, systematize and organize right so yeah. you, you got the feeling from that statement that joseph's saying look it's all here but it's not perfect yet and that's your job is to 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 put it in its proper place so to speak right make it flow exactly so let, let me ask you this question because i think this question has some uh repercussions behind it moroni which is do you think at the time that brigham young finishes the process of, quote, systematizing and organizing the endowment, 
do you feel like that 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 is the culmination that hey that's where it's supposed to be and that's what it's supposed to look like yes um uh yes and no i mean you know there are th- and we can get into this later but there are things like the oath of vengeance that i think were particular to brigham's time and not necessarily our own uh i don't have a problem with um additions being made down to the uh, or made, being made to the endowment as long as it's uh number one revealed number two necessary but uh one thing that i disagree with that happened after brigham's death was uh you know expediency political expediency being used to soften the endowment and uh to me that's subtracting from the endowment you know if somebody has more to add to it and it's it's provided by revelation. I don't have a problem with it, but when you're whittling away at the ordinances, just because you want to be more palatable to the world, then that's when I have a problem with it. Well, and and to be fair, I think, I think we we've seen that for quite a while now as, as Mormons, right. In general. Uh, Oh, it's like nonstop, especially in the, in the, uh, in the LDS church. Right. I mean, I think at some point this thing's going to be a drive-through there, uh, where you can just you know go go through for expediency, so to speak, right? Yeah. So exactly. where where okay so so you get the feeling okay Brigham you know Joseph Smith has this revealed. It's kind of taking shape, you know, as early as Kirtland, but really starts to crystallize in Nauvoo. The Saints head out west. Brigham ha you know tells Nuttall let's get this thing to where it's supposed to be let's fulfill Joseph's charge to me and get this thing where it needs to be how long does the endowment as we know it and all the temple ordinances how long do they continue in the way they should before you start seeing changes creep in well, I think that uh that uh there were alterations uh as early as uh, like 1893, they started kind of trying to soften things. I think the one of the first things they did was to take out Brigham's lecture at the Vale. You know, they still had a lecture at the Vale, but it wasn't Brigham's at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was uh, Joseph F. Smith started disagreeing with the teaching of the Adam God doctrine. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we know, Brigham's Brigham's uh, lecture at the Vale is all about the Adam God doctrine, and uh, still, you know, to this day, if people want to know about the Adam God doctrine, I'll direct them to like a website that I know that has the lecture at the Vale printed, and I'm like, yeah, read this for yourself because it explains it fairly succinctly. The Adam God doctrine was so important to the saints back then and to Brigham that it was part of the endowment, undeniably. And what's interesting, and so you're talking to a guy that two years, you know. I guess three now. I can't remember. Anyway, who's not too far removed from the LDS church, right? I'm a guy who converted to the LDS church and now yeah. I'm, I'm a fundamentalist, right? But what you see is that you know what they're doing once you know what used to be taught, right? And so Adam yeah. God is huge. That's That's one of those things that really redefines, in my opinion the the mainstream church in a big way but 
it's there all throughout those higher ordinances of the temple, right? It's yeah. there through the endowment, especially. And so if you're trying to get rid of that doctrine, it makes sense. If that's where it's taught the most is in the temple, you now have to go to work in trying to gently remove that without causing too much angst of the membership. The problem yep. is, is that once you understand the Adam God doctrine, I don't think you can totally get rid of it out of the endowment. There's always going to no. be some remnant there, right? And as soon as you understand the Adam God doctrine really well, you're going to be able to pick it out really quickly. Yeah. And I think that's one of your benefits um, that I don't have. I was cut off from the LDS church before I went through the endowment. I, I, I was like at that missionary age where, where I got excommunicated uh, before I was able to get endowed in the church. So I don't have the benefit of you of uh, seeing the, the LDS endowment. And uh, I've never seen the movies <laughs> that they show. And, uh, you know, uh, and I'm sure they're online. I'm sure that if I wanted to, I could. But I've just never taken that opportunity yet. So Yeah, no, it, it's been interesting just in my time, just in my 20 years I was in the LDS church, I saw massive changes, right? And and it always did bug me, right? I mean, like, look, if if you start doing the math and this thing's about making covenants, right? Well, why won't my kids end up making the same covenants as I do, right? And right. so that, that, that threw in a lot of, of uh, questioning, if you will. So as early as 1893, we start seeing him trying to take out the um, lecture at the Vale. Yeah. What are some of the successive ones? Because in my study, and maybe you might have a different opinion, but in my study, it seems like the changes came really slowly and really softly. And then in yeah. about the last 20 years, it's like, okay, now we're going to put our foot on the accelerator and completely <laughs> gut this thing. Well, I think that, uh, you know, during the Reed Smith hearings, Mm -hmm. Um, which of course we know that you know he was being try having a congressional trial because of uh, his association with the church and plural marriage. The endowment became something that was under congressional scrutiny because they were trying to find any evidence that Reed Smoot was a traitor to the United States. And uh, one of the things that they focus on was the Oath of Vengeance. And, of course, uh, the Oath of Vengeance was where they <laughs> promised to never cease praying for the Lord to avenge the blood of the martyred righteous dead. And uh, however many generations, third or fourth generation, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, if you look at it in context, the saints went through a lot in Missouri and in losing uh, their prophet. And so, of course, they're going to pray for, you know, his uh, his blood to be avenged. But that was part of the temple endowment uh, until Congress brought up the wording of the oath. And, you know, they were trying to put Reed Smoot on the hot seat. And it was shortly after that that uh, that was one of the first things that Heber J. Grant revised was uh, when he became president was removing the oath of vengeance. And Heber J. Grant did uh, a bunch more. Um, the penalties were a little bit more gruesome 
and uh, Heber J. Grant kind of take soften that a little bit. And uh, then uh, uh, one of the ones that I found that was interesting that, uh, and I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this. Uh, yeah. Lucifer, uh, the choir, you know, when, when Lucifer has the pastor who, who directs the congregation to sing, they, in the old days, they used, actually used to have a temple choir that would sing the song. And then, uh, you know, uh, but uh, one of the changes Heber J. Grant made is that Lucifer is directing the, or, or the, the preacher is directing um, the congregation, the people who were recipients of the temple endowment that day to sing. And, uh, you know, one of the things when I was in the AUB that uh, we used to discuss was uh, that it was a form of test. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it was a form of test to see who would follow Lucifer's uh, servant, the preacher, and sing along and who would remain silent. And there would be men who would brag, well, you know, I didn't sing, you know. And I, I, honest, I honestly can't remember my first endowment well enough to know whether I sang or not. I think I probably did. You know, <laughs> but uh, it's it's kind of funny that that's how they interpreted it, and and uh, you know, ultimately they discontinued the existence of the preacher altogether right. because like, it's offensive to you know mainstream Christianity. But uh, and uh, then one of the other changes that uh, occurred around 1923 was the alteration of the of the the temple garment. They created what was called the street garment which was uh, to the elbows instead of all the way to the wrists and to the knees um, instead of all the way to the ankle. And this was the garment that you were to wear in your everyday life. But then when you would go back to the temple, you would wear the long garment, the temple garment once again. And that, that came, that came about during that time period. Hmm. So there was actually two garments that were used during that time. Yeah. And I remember my parents talking about that because my parents were endowed in the early 1960s. And so they had both the temple garment and the street garment. And I think it was like uh, around 1975, 76, somewhere where they totally discontinued the temple garment in favor of uh, the shorter street garment, which was now just your garments, not your street garment. Hmm. That's interesting. So, let me ask you this. Did that take place during uh, Heber J. Grant's time, or was that during Joseph F. Smith's time? No, I think, uh, I think the, the alteration of the, uh, of the garment, the street garment, was 1923, and I'm pretty sure that was during Heber J. Grant's tenure. Okay. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, good old Heber J. Grant. <laughs> He, yeah, yeah, he seems to be a focal point of where things really start to go off the rails a little bit. Um, so that that takes us through that nineteen twenty three period. <clears throat> what what are some of the fallouts that that you think you can see in in the changes that were implemented up to that point? Well, you know, if we're going to talk about Hebrew J. Grant, um, I read in. Rudger Clausen's biography that uh, both Rudger Clausen and uh, and Heber J. Grant were part of, uh, when they were young, when they were teenagers, they were part of a movement 
a literary movement that was uh, taking place in Salt Lake at the time among the youth, where they would uh, get together, read poetry, which uh, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with having a literary society, but there was a marked attitude with this group of young people. They were embarrassed by plural marriage, even though both Rutger Clausen and um, Heber J. Grant became polygamists. They were both embarrassed. That group of people were embarrassed by the principle. They were trying to dress in Paris-style fashions. Um, I think that uh, they were a group of people that yearned for the world and yearned for the attention of the world. And I think that that attitude prevailed with Heber J. Grant uh, all through, you know, his adulthood into his uh, apostleship and ultimately into the presidency of the church. Of course, we know that he's the one that waged war the most on, on fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I think a lot of what Heber J. Grant did was trying to become more palatable to the world and to show the world that, hey, we're not like that anymore. You know, we don't, we don't embrace this principle anymore, you know. And he was trying to make a point. He was trying to impress people, I think. And along with that goes the softening and the whittling away of uh, our temple ceremonies in order to be more favorable to outsiders, you know, because a less bizarre endowment means more converts. I mean, there's no other way that you can put it. They want more converts. They've, you know, the latest, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but the latest batch of changes that took place in the temple in 2019, the church didn't mix, mince any bones about it. Or, or they, they basically came right out and said that they put out a questionnaire to a certain amount of members mm-hmm. to see how they would feel about making these changes. It wasn't revelation. It was done by committee. It was, you know, uh, it was done by a marketing team. <laughs> Right, so. right. And and that's, and that's really what is is the most disturbing about some of these changes, right? I I'm a guy who believes in continual revelation, right? It's it's hard to to think that you can espouse that idea of continued revelation and then um when something new comes out just disregard it. But if you change something like you were saying, why are we taking things away? Right? Right. Right. Because that doesn't make any sense with how the Lord works. Right? And I believe that Joseph Smith said, if you want to see a mark of a false prophet, he will do contradictory to what the previous prophet had done. And yeah. and, and that's very concerning. And the other oh. thing is, is that, because I tend to want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, right? Even though yeah. I think he screws up tremendously, even though I think he he does damage beyond repair, I'm sure that Heber J. Grant thought he was doing the right thing, right? I got to take the church from this old pioneer, you know, bizarre thing and, and bring it into modernity, right? And so yeah. I have no doubt he what in his mind he's thinking okay I I'm doing a great service here. In doing that however, he's now kicked the door down in a way that hadn't been done to that point. And if I'm wrong correct me, that hadn't been done to that point 
where now I think he set that precedence that that those changes would begin to become more drastic and more frequent within the temple ceremony. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing that I wonder is uh, what would have Heber G. Grant have done had he known how this would have snowballed if he had seen the changes that are taking place now? You know, you even have James E. Talmadge. And Talmadge is recognized as, you know, like one of the more progressive, um, you know, orthodox, you know, creator. He's the creator of orthodox Mormonism. You even find quotes from Talmud saying the temple ordinances must not be changed. And, right. uh, you know, I think that they are probably rolling in their graves seeing what has happened to the church now. You know, I mean, we live in a day and age now where where, uh, according to the modern Mormon, Bruce R. McConkie is considered uh, antiquated and uh, almost even quasi-fundamentalist. <laughs> no, you're, you know? you're 100% correct. I remember the last talk I ever gave in the LDS Church, I quoted Bruce R. And th- this, I think this is a good, a good measuring stick. When I first joined the church, right, in, in 1995, everyone's like, read Mormon doctrine. You can do no better than get a, a copy of Mormon Doctrine. Fast forward 20-some years later, I quote Mormon Doctrine in a talk I give, and I get dragged into the bishop's office, and, you know, like, hey, we don't use that anymore. And I'm like, this is good stuff, bro. I You, you really need to get into it, right? And uh, he uh, he was like, yeah, no, we're, we're not doing that. So... I think you're right. I think that that this just snowballed out of control. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, uh, and I wanted to point out one of the things that Joseph Smith said repeatedly. You know, that where there is no change in order, and where there's you'll, you'll have to help me with this. I'm I'm not like my friend Sean Anderson. I can't spit quotes out just <laughs> off the top of my head. You're looking but, uh, for me, where there's no change in ordinance, there is no change in priesthood. Right. So, I mean, so that, you know, the flip side of that is where you, where you have a change of uh, ordinances, you have a change of priesthood. And uh, my dad, who passed away in 2002, you know, he didn't live to see the changes that have taken place in the church now, but he used to say, that once they did away with uh, the penalties, that uh, he said that the endowment was half a loaf. That when you went went and got the endowment, all you got was half a loaf. That's how he used to refer to it. And, you know, that was one of the major changes that came about around 1990. Um, 1990, they uh, I mentioned that they eliminated the, the part of the preacher. They also eliminated uh, Lucifer referring to popes and priests, because I guess that was offensive to popes and priests. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, they uh, they dropped a lot of other things. Uh, the, the five points of fellowship, they dropped uh, the penalties. The penalties were removed completely. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, I, as you know, I, I circulate on, you know, a lot of... Uh, Mormon circles, particularly like a lot of the Exmo circles. And uh, with the portrayal 
in um, Under the Banner of Heaven of the penalties, you know, and what they tried to do is they tried to foreshadow the use of penalties as, um, as, um, you know, uh, something pertaining to blood atonement and something that eventually led to the Lafferty murders. And, uh, you know, they've tried to make it ominous, but, uh, you know, and, and, and I wish, I wish that I had one of my friends here with me who has explained that, um, you know, uh, penalties that, you know, a covenant doesn't mean very much according to Hebraic law, unless there is a blood oath attached to it, that it's the blood oath that makes the, the covenant stronger. And it's not supposing that you would want to have blood atonement done to you or that you would want to do blood atonement to anyone. It's kind of like an advanced version of cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye kind of thing. You know, right. that uh, you're making a covenant that I would rather have this happen to me than betray my covenants. And, uh, you know, uh, it's really hard in these circles to discuss um, the importance of the penalties and, and how much they weaken the endowment by removing those, you know. Uh, and only the only the only reason they removed them is because they didn't want to offend people. Well, and, and I think, look, even in covenants we make with each other in business, right? If you enter into a contract with someone, you're very aware of what happens when you breach that contract, right? If, if you buy a house and you fail to make your payments, well, you know they're coming from the, for the house. You know that there's going to be money that you owe on top of them taking your house. Same way with a car. Same way with a loan, any of those things. There, there are penalties, so to speak, that are enacted when you, when, when you breach that covenant, right? Now, as you were yeah. saying, I agree with you that that doesn't mean that you're begging to be, quote, blood atoned or that you're wanting to go do that to somebody else. It just drives home the point, right? I don't know about you. When I bought my first car as a kid, right, I was probably 18. And I'm signing my name on that dotted line. And I'll never forget this. The, the gentleman who sold me the car, he kind of put his hand on my wrist. He's like, understand, son, if you do not, you know, fulfill your obligation here, all these things are going to happen to you. He listed it out. Scared me to death, right? From that point right. forward, I'm like, we're going to pay that thing four days early, right? That payment's always four days early. Because I know what's attached. Now, that's for a car. It's for a car, right? If you're taking an, a covenant, if you're making a covenant with God that has eternal ramifications, it makes sense that, hey, there, there has to be a mechanism in place to drive home how important this is. And that failure to live up to these will result in eternal consequences. Not blood atonement, right. but eternal consequences. Right, exactly. And, and, and really, when you look at it, you can say it, it's a genius move in, in a lot of ways in respects to those because it does drive home the fact you're on the hook, bro. And so yeah. you better walk up to these things right now. Yeah, I, I remember that uh, in the 90s that there was a journalist who... Um, 
it was like one of the first exposés of the temple ceremony that uh, I came across. And I, I can't remember her name right offhand, but I know that she used to write for a zine called Phoenix New Times in Phoenix. And um, she wrote an expose of the temple and she had several chapters dedicated to exposing the endowment. She, she wrote the, the whole endowment out verbatim and published it and was on the bestsellers list for a couple of weeks. And, um, and uh, I always thought that it was funny that the only part she didn't write about was uh, where uh, Lucifer asked, do you sell your tokens for money? <laughs> <laughs> because she, here she obviously was, she was writing a sensationalist, uh, you know, overview of the temple. And, uh, for the sake of money and she just neglected to put that part in there <laughs> yeah see that yeah you know that one hit close to home right she got right there to write that one and went yeah we're gonna leave that one out right that one that one might hit a little too close to home so they but, change uh, oh go ahead no go ahead i was gonna say they they change all that stuff in 90 and 90 seems to be a a benchmark year so to speak as far as temple changes go right Right. Um, that's where where it, it really, I think, kicks into high gear. Right. That, that right. now it's a concerted effort. Where does it go from there? Well, from there, uh, I think in 2005, they start doing a symbolic washing and anointing instead of, um, you know, an actual washing and anointing, which was bizarre to me because it was, I guess, akin to. Uh, when the early Christians stopped uh, doing baptism by immersion and started sprinkling, you know, so, cause that's essentially what the washing and anointing were, you know, you, you were uh, sprinkled and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, so it evolved from, you know, the days in Nauvoo when they were standing in the bathtub being full on scrubbed and washed. And then, uh, Brigham Young used to talk about being anointed so much that he had, oil dripping down into his beard you know and now it's just a little sim you know i don't even know how they can call it a washing and anointing anymore right you know so uh, i don't know if you went through the church to see that particular change but so yeah i i was when i went through it was you know the old days of you put on the shield and and you were you were washed and anointed and then i remember that 2005 man that's just gone just yeah. no, no more. We're not going to do it. So let me yeah. ask. Let me ask you this, right? That that kind of takes us up to to pretty much modern day, right? Twenty nineteen, some things happened that really concerned yes. me. Um, right. And and this is where I hit my point, right? And and to be fair, I've already dabbled at this point in. I shouldn't say dabbled. I was living plural marriage for five or six years, <laughs> but you know. I, I was more than dabbling. I took that bad boy and dove deep. Anyway, yeah. um, I uh, I see the changes that are made, and and I'm I'm trying to be super respectful here, but there are some changes that are made that directly affect how the family unit is supposed to function. Yeah, and I I have some strong opinions on that. <laughs> Go, I'd love to hear that. Go ahead. Okay, so basically, um. I don't know exactly what the wording is, uh, any, uh, but they they changed the the law of obedience where that's um, where I was going. Yep. Yeah. Well, where the um, 
the the husband covenants to obey the law of God, and the wife covenants to obey the law of her husband. And uh, you know, uh, my opinion on that is that they totally, you know, I have a lot of things where I, I love semantics. I like love looking at it. So uh, it doesn't say what they think it says in that particular scripture or that particular covenant. I mean, um, the husband covenants to obey the law of God. Um, the wife isn't covenanting, covenanting. That's a, doesn't roll off the tongue that easily. The wife isn't covenanting, making a covenant to obey her husband. She's covenanting to obey the law of her husband. And what's the law of her husband? Law of her husband is the law of God. Right. So she's not covenanting. She's not making a covenant to. I don't know why I'm having a hard time with that word. <laughs> she's not making a covenant to obey her husband at all. She's covenant, making a covenant the same as her husband to obey the law of God. So um, the change in my estimation was redundant because, the, you know, um, she's already making that covenant. You know, but they have to soften the language because they're trying to keep membership and uh, appease people who are protesting that who, in my estimation, have completely misunderstood what the covenant is saying. Absolutely. I remember this was such a hard point for me, and, and this that did crystallize when I did leave. That That one instant was enough for me to say, I'm done. I'm done. Now it's it's a bridge too far. I was willing to live with some of the other stuff once my plural marriage went to hell in a handbasket, and I was I was willing to go back to the LDF church and be like, I'm just going to sit in the back and I'm just going to do my thing. Didn't work out yeah. that way. I always got put into some sort of leadership calling, but um, <laughs> of course, of course, right. And anyway, um, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> when that change happened, that was my breaking point. That's when I was like. Yeah, we're done, right? I, right? At this point, it's becoming a, a full-out mockery, right? Now, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know, right? If you didn't know what, what it was supposed to look like, you wouldn't know. But I remember I went in and I talked to my um, my priesthood leader, so to speak, in the LDS church, and I just said, look, I'm done. And he said, well, why are you done? Can you explain it to me? He's like, Brother Sanders, our our are you having a faith crisis? I'm like, yes, but not the way you think, right? Like <laughs> my pro, you're going to, you're going to be, you know, I believe too much, I think. Right. And so I tell him about my problem I have with this. And I remember he, he looked at me and he said, well, well, brother Sanders, I mean, don't you think that covenant could have been used to, um, to oppress women? I was like, yeah, I think it totally could be used for that. Absolutely, it could be, yeah. But just because that's going on, you don't change a covenant, right? I used to really like to, you know, screw around. And, you know, before I joined the church, I full admission, I was a man whore, right? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I was pretty wild, right? You wouldn't change the law of chastity just because you had some men who were struggling to live it. Right. But we're OK doing this. And, and he was he didn't have anything to say at that point. But I'm like, it, it doesn't carry water. And and to me. That was the first time I saw something I couldn't kind of explain away. Right. Like, OK, right. this this is black and white now. They have 
they have far exceeded anything I can do men- mental gymnastics for. Right. So, so that that, so that was it for you then, huh? That was it. I was like later days, peace out, deuces. I'm I'm not participating anymore. And yeah, that was just three years ago. Can you imagine mm-hmm. what's next? <laughs> well, like I said, I think you're just going to go up and order a number seven at a drive through one day. I think that's that's the logical yeah. progression. But um, okay, so that takes us up to pretty much modern day, right? The that's right. that's the bulk of where we're at now. A bunch has been taken away. A bunch has been changed. Let's talk about the fallout from that for a second, Moroni. What do you think the fallout is going to be to members of of the mainstream LDS church? And let's talk even further back. But what's been the fallout of not participating in those correct ordinances? Well, uh, as far as uh, consequences, is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Well, uh, I think that it diminishes um, their priesthood and and the you know the endowment that we were talking about from on high that Joseph Smith was, uh, you know, Joseph Smith already laid out the formula for being endowed from on high. You know, what is it that we learn in the, in the temple? We learn how to approach the face of God and communicate directly with them. And you're taking that completely away. Um, you know, I'm not going to be one who's going to say that the, that the church endowment is completely invalid. Um, you know, cause I've heard that among other fundamentalists, uh, I'm not going to say that it's completely invalid because, you know, it says right in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 132, that the Lord honors all, you know, covenants, contracts, bonds, etc. They're still making a covenant, but, you know, I'm not going to lie. I think that, I think that it's greatly diminished and, um, you know, um, if there is any area where the church has diminished their ability to function in the priesthood, it's in the changing of the ordinances. You know, and it says it uh, right in Isaiah, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, they, and of course I'm paraphrasing again, but transgressed the law and uh, changed the ordinance and broke the new and everlasting covenant, broke the everlasting covenant. Um, you know, we like to say, Wherefore, Isaiah saw our day. Well, Isaiah saw our day. You can't break the everlasting covenant and change the ordinances unless you had them. And sadly, I think that's exactly where the church is right now. So it's so interesting to me that as, as I read back in Scripture, right, and you look at human beings back then and you look at human beings now, we're not that much different. I think we like to think we are. Right. I, I think we like to look at folks in the Old Testament who screwed up royally and go, how could they have done that? But I think right. we're doing it right now or, or or have up to this point, again, done the same thing. Right. If if we go back to uh, Moses. Right. And Moses and, and Joseph Smith points this out in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, where he's like, come up, to, come, come up the mountain with me. You can right. go see God. You can exactly. only come see God with, with me, right? C- come on, let's go. And everyone's like, hell no. You right. go ahead, Moses. We're good, right? <laughs> I think it's very much the same thing that we're seeing with the temple now, right? Yeah. 
Now, obviously, in Moses' times, there were certain covenants they would have to fulfill to see the face of God. Yes. Likewise, if you look at the entire endowment ceremony, it's doing two things. It's teaching you about Adam God, because realistically, that puts you in your place in relationship to God. And then it's teaching you how to commune with him. Right? Again, let's go up and let's see the face of God. No, I'm good. Thanks, bro. Right? And so we're doing the same thing over again. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around this because I used to think, okay, so we know in the the primitive church and in the Old Testament, New Testament times, and, and during early on in the Restoration, there's all of these miracles that are being performed. Where are they now? You hear about them anecdotally every once in a while, but not to the scale they were. And it took me forever to, to, to make the connection. Well, if we're not living up to the same covenant, I don't think we can expect the same blessing. Right. Now, now at this point, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, at this point, I think I, I got to say, look, for anyone who doesn't know these things and are making covenants sincerely in an LDS temple, walk up to those covenants. Right, you're yes. you're making those covenants, and there is some effect there. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit it right on the head, and and uh, that's a whole reason we build temples, is so that we can have communion with God face to face. And uh, you know, why are we messing with the formula? <laughs> right. Well, and and to be fair, I think there's a lot of messing with the formula right now. Right, I. I've looked at what's so I won't say who I work for. Well, most people already know what I do, but uh I do some work on the Salt Lake Temple and I saw what they're doing to it. And it occurred to me that uh we're getting the new Coke of Mormonism right now. You yeah. remember you remember old Coke and new Coke yeah, and what a disaster it was? I think I remember. Getting, I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting new Coke Mormon, right? I, I think that's what we're, we're we're signing up for right now, and yeah. it, it's looking a lot more like like just I don't I don't know, just another church, I guess, with some really fancy buildings. Well, this is the whole purpose of having fundamentalism because we're a group of people who are trying to keep the old ways, including the endowment, alive on the face of the earth. Right. You bring up, and, and that brings me to another question. Do you think there's any group or or independent uh, cooperative, so to speak, I guess, that, that have the original ordinance as it was revealed to Joseph and then perfected by Brigham? I don't think anybody has anything perfected. I think that, uh, that uh, like Isaiah said, there's vomit on all tables, but... Uh, you know, uh, and I really can't speak for the experience of a lot of the other groups because I haven't uh, participated in them uh, or in any of their ceremonies. But uh, I come from the AUB, and um, the uh, AUB for years, you know, a lot of the fundamentalist organizations back then they they believed that their commission was only plural marriage and united order, basically. And uh, they felt that their mandate was not to exceed or do anything that the church was doing in and of itself. So a lot of them, um, a lot of them uh, would send their children to the LDS church to receive their endowments. And uh, it wasn't until 
1978, when the priesthood ban and temple ban was lifted, that they felt, well, hey, maybe we can't send our kids there. And so the AUB um, started uh, doing the temple ceremony around like 1982. And, uh, you know, there's a whole story behind that. They, they tried to get scripts. They managed to smuggle some scripts from the church. They bought materials from Fred Collier. They did everything that they could to assemble a working script. And basically, it's very similar to the 1877 St. George ceremony, but it's not exactly the same, you know. Um, but it's similar uh, in many respects. And they started doing the endowment from then. And of course, I got I broke off from the EB, and so um, the people that I I split off with were doing endowments and had an endowment house, and uh, I've done endowments from inside of living rooms, inside of endowment houses, uh, you know, uh, anywhere and everywhere that we could, and uh, I was set apart as a temple worker for the better part of twenty years, and. Uh, um, I've, I've uh, attended endowment ceremonies with other groups. I've visited other groups, you know, like uh, I uh, I saw that uh, the, the FLDS built a temple over in Texas. Hmm. And I don't really know what they do in their temple beyond the kind of scary stories that I hear. But uh, every time I've ever talked to somebody from the FLDS, they really don't understand almost anything about temple work. And uh, I went up to visit uh, Winston Blackmore's group up in Canada uh, several years ago. And uh, I talked to some of the young people there that uh, I was visiting, and they didn't know anything about any endowments. And the way they view it is that in the FLDS, that whatever version of the endowment they had, you know, was for the elite only. And so they have kind of written off temple work as something unnecessary because it's something that Warren Jess was doing among his elite. So, uh, you know, I know that uh, some of the people from the LeBaron tradition, you know, like the spe specifically the Ross LeBaron tradition, have been doing a type of endowment for a while. I know that Christchurch has been doing an endowment. So so I, I am familiar that some people are, perpetuating these things but i don't know to what degree and to what level and you know because um, there's an awful lot of fundamentalists that don't do any sort of endowment work and i myself haven't done any endowment work for about seven years now just because i'm completely isolated and uh so in your mind where where you you kind of think okay nobody has has it the way it probably should be overall, right? They can get it close, probably. They can dial it in kind of tight. At what point do you see that getting fixed? Or do you think that there is maybe criteria within the endowment that is like absolutely necessary and then everything else can be kind of negotiable? I mean, what do you see there? How do you, how does that work for you in, in, in your mind? Well, I think that, uh, we're going to correct the endowment we have to have a place built where the lord can come and correct us and uh you know that's kind of a you know 
me making that statement is a lot more controversial in a lot of fundamentalist circles than a lot of people realize. Excuse me. Um, um, you know, in the AUB, they built a temple down in Mexico. They have an endowment house in Salt Lake, but they are still afraid to move forward and do more temple work because they still cling to the bully commission of don't do anything that the church is doing. And, um, you know, they pray for the temple doors to be open. And I've always been of the opinion that uh, Mormons are always a temple building people. And, uh, and, uh, you know, if we build temples, is that not having the temple doors open to us if we build our own? But, uh, you know, if we were going to be set in order, got to have a place where the Lord can come and direct us first. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right in the sense that. Look, I, I think when the Lord comes down to correct his people, I think there's going to be a lot of mainstream LDS people. I think there's going to be a lot of, of fundamentalists in everywhere in between where we're all like, Ooh, yeah, I probably screwed that one up, right? That one's on me. So I, I don't, I tend to be a little more inclusive on this than, than perhaps a lot of other people that, that I um, associate with or whatever. Cause I, I think, I just don't know if at this point we can get it exactly back to what it was in 1877. Right. right. I think that it's just, just not going to happen. Now, having said that, because um, of things I read in scripture and and certain things I have felt during prayer, I think that the Lord just doesn't deal with the X's and O's of of uh, any certain script, right? I think I right. think He's looking at the heart a little bit here, and this is where we have to. I have think faith. so too. I think this is where we have to have faith that okay. Is it better to not participate at all because you don't have a perfect understanding? Or is it better to at least make those covenants with God and then that at least puts you in a position to be schooled along the way? Right? Wherever that leads. Right. And, and right. You have to maintain the spirit of the law. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I think sometimes out of... Well, probably just apprehension, right? Like, gosh, I'm I'm not sure I should be doing this outside of you know, sanctioned areas. That that we we kind of cut ourselves off a little bit. Well, I think generally among most fundamentalists I've known, they um, are afraid to err on the side of doing too much, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that. I'm more afraid of erring on the side of doing too little. <laughs> I, know, I, would, uh, I would agree with you. Joseph Smith said no man will ever be damned because he believed too much. Right. Right. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah. You blanked out for a second. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I, I just, I'm with you. I, I, I kind of err on the side of approach the Lord. Right. Yeah. We saw what happened yeah. with the children of Israel. That didn't pan out well. I think we just need to approach the Lord more. Yeah. 
So I, I think that we probably need to talk about the biggest change in the temple, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah, we're we're here. So should we get into it? Should we get yep. into it? All right, folks, buckle up. Here we go. All right. So in your I know it's opinion, like the it's like the elephant, the monkey on our back, so to speak. It, it really is. It's the elephant in the room. It's the one that everybody, whether you're mainstream LDS, whether you're a fundamentalist, there is a certain amount of cringe to this next subject, right? And right. I've I've always I, said. I've always just own it, right? Let's just get it out there. Let's flush it out and let's go with it. So what is that to you, Milano? What is that? Well, that, that would have to, the biggest change of the temple would be uh, 1978. The, uh, the lifting of the priesthood uh, ban and the temple ban upon people of the African persuasion. Well, no one wants to talk about this. No, no, everybody, everybody clams up about it, and everybody avoids the subject. And I'm a firm believer that that uh, it needs to be addressed directly and confronted directly. Right. You know, we can't. We're so afraid. You know, and I think that generally, Mormons are very passive aggressive, and uh, they don't like saying things overtly that might be offensive. And so their remedy is to just not talk about it, ignore it, you know. We are kind of a dysfunctional family in that way, right? right. We, we, we really are. Rather than just have that awkward and comfortable conversation, we're totally cool with just letting it sit for this Thanksgiving and we'll have it next Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> but, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to say some things here that is going to get me in some trouble. And I don't look. I made a promise to God a long time ago that I was going to follow truth no matter where it went. Right. Yeah. And, and if, if this is one of those things that I have to die on this hill, so be it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that. So in 1978 prior to, let's back up here and I'm going to kind of sum up to 1978 and you can tell me if I'm incorrect here prior to 19, prior to, Brigham Young's tenure as as president of the LDS Church. Uh, Joseph Smith did, in fact, uh, ordain two men of African descent. Uh, one was Elijah Abel. Who was the other? Uh, Walker Lewis, I believe. Walker Lewis, thank you. To the priesthood. Yes. Brigham Young then becomes prophet of the LDS Church. And yeah. He then places a ban that we that no longer can men of African descent be given the priesthood or enter yeah. the temple. And then that takes root and holds all the way to 1978. And then in 1978, the LDS Church uh, then goes in and says, that's over. Now yeah. African-American men can hold the priesthood and they can enter the temple. Yes. If you're comfortable, tell me what your thoughts are on that whole history and where we are now. Okay. Well, you and I have kind of talked a little bit about this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that I think it's pretty hard to tell my thoughts on this without telling my story. Right. Of uh, right. what I went through. And I'm willing to do that even though it's kind of difficult to get this out. So 
1978, uh, the, the ban on blacks holding the priesthood and entering the temple is lifted. For my dad, you talked about how 2019 was the, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back for you. For my dad, it was uh, 1978. Um, you know, he had been raised in the church. He was a temple-bowing Mormon. Uh, but he had fundamentalist leanings, and when that happened, he stopped attending. He never went to the temple again after that. And, um, you know, he, he attended church for about another 10 years before his excommunication. But, uh, but you know, and I used to tell my dad, I, I'd say, uh, why do I have to go to church? You don't go to church. And he'd say, well, son, until you've studied as much into the gospel as I have, um, you have to go to church. He says, until that time that you've studied as much as I have, you know, you you just have to go. And uh, so uh, anyway, so we become fundamentals. Okay. Uh, fundament, and one of the first experiences I had, I associated with some independents before I joined the AUB. And uh, I know that, uh, I know that uh, my friend, Sean Anderson, on one of your recent posts talked a little bit about the same time period because we went through it. We experienced huge amounts of racism because we're um, mixed race. I'm, we're both half Mexican. Uh, we both have uh, white fathers and Mexican mothers. And so I, you know, growing up in Arizona, I had never experienced being on the receiving end of racism until I moved to Utah. And, um, I have to say, even though my dad believed in the priesthood ban, he always, always um, um, taught us to respect other people of other races. He didn't tolerate any, you know, he didn't tolerate a saying the N-word or anything like that. And then I get to Utah, and it's the N-word, just about every other word from coming out of a lot of people's mouths. And that was hard for me. That was really, really hard for me. So, uh Anyway, so we joined the AUB and uh, broke off from the AUB, went out on our own. We had a small community gathered in Arizona. I was living in the United Order back then. And um, we had a family that uh, came trying to communicate with us. And uh, it was a guy who was in the AUB, but uh, he had met online a um, lady of Polynesian descent. She was um, half uh, Samoan and half Maori. And uh, while he was in the AUB, he tried to get himself sealed to this woman. But um, um, the priesthood council in the AUB was bouncing back and forth on whether they should seal her or not. Now, I had grown up in an area that didn't have any Polynesians. When I got to, when I got to, uh, Utah, all the fundamentalists were saying that uh, the Polynesians fell under the curse of Cain, just like the Africans did. And uh, because I didn't know any better, I just went along with it. Okay, you know, they kind of look like they do, you know. So uh, anyway, uh, my dad was polite at the time. So this this guy got a hold of me. He wanted to have a ceiling performed for this woman from uh, New Zealand who was of Polynesian descent. So I took it to my dad and my dad kind of just said, well, he said, this is a sticky situation. He said, it would be better if we kind of just left this one alone. So I actually wrote this guy back and said, sorry, you don't have a place here with us. And um, 
And uh, then my dad passed away in the interim. And then this guy, this guy kept writing to me and writing to me and basically pleading to come and uh, have fellowship with us. He had been thrown out of the AUB. He wanted to find, uh, he wanted to be sealed. And uh, so uh, I, uh, he said something that resonated with me. He said, all I tried to get from the AUB was righteous judgment and they wouldn't give it to me. And when he said that, that resonated to me, with me that, yeah, we did have to judge this situation accordingly. So uh, I uh, invited him out. So he showed up uh, at one of our conferences. And uh, when I saw his car pull up, we were all standing outside of our building, our chapel house, and we were watching him pull up. And he got out of the car, this white dude, and then his uh, Polynesian wife gets out of the car. And um, I uh, took uh, I took one look at her, and uh, I thought, oh, there's no problem there at all. But I guess uh, a lot of other people in our community, uh, even family members of mine, took one look at her, and they thought the opposite. They saw they saw Canaanite, and and so uh, there was a debate that instantly ensued in our community about whether or not to. Um, to accept them in our community. And so they moved, they moved to the area. And honestly, we took too long in making a decision. They were there for three years and nobody was making a decision as to whether to fully fellowship them or not. And, uh, so, uh, I was, uh, a young man. And so I was, uh, I was assigned by our priesthood council to investigate the situation. And so I started studying history. Uh, church history specifically, and I uh, was researching the fact that um, that uh, the Polynesians have a long history in the LDS Church. That uh, Joseph Smith sent missionaries to the Cook Islands shortly after the church was founded. Uh, Brigham Young sent missionaries to Tonga, and uh, uh, by the way, this woman she also had children. That their father was Tongan, and their children were teenagers and they were associating with our young people and uh, and so uh, you know uh, I came across lots of things uh, church history in Tonga where, where uh, Tongans and people on the Cook Islands when the missionaries were forced for whatever reason to pull out of those areas that they left priesthood leadership in charge and uh, those, those saints gathered a lot of those uh, Tongan saints gathered to Utah and moved to Tooele and you know, uh, so you would think that if there was a problem with their lineage, like the fundamentalists were teaching, that that would have come up a long time ago with Brigham Young and other other uh, people that were teaching. So I even went to New Zealand. This couple invited me to New Zealand with them. And uh, I uh, went to like a South Pacific uh, anthropological museum. Uh, I went to... Um, the Hamilton Temple in New Zealand, and I photocopied in the lobby. They had different testimonies of uh, different Maori people who had prophecies that the priesthood would come into their midst, and they had these prophecies for like almost fifty years before the first Mormon missionary showed up. And so, uh, so uh, what I did is that I assembled this packet of information that I had gathered in New Zealand. And that I had gathered uh, in church history books, and I 
presented this information to our, our priesthood council. And when I gave it to them, they completely rejected the information, all except for one man. And uh, this particular man uh, had a stepson who was engaged to one of these Polynesian girls. And so he got the idea to do a uh, DNA test. And so uh, when he did the DNA test on one of these Polynesian girls, it uh, it uh, turned out that uh, they were, uh, I can't remember the exact percentages, but uh, it uh, was like, uh, it was like 30% European, 30% uh, Asian, 20%. Native American, 0% Sub-Saharan African. I don't remember the exact percentages, but it was 0% Sub-Saharan African. So uh, so that showed us right there that there was no question with them being Canaanite, so to speak. And uh, what happened is that uh, um, a wedding was performed, a ceiling was performed for this uh, couple. And uh, what ensued was, you know, we used to have a chapel and the upper floor of the chapel had a prayer room where we would meet every Sunday and perform the true order prayer. And when we got there, that uh, the locks had just been changed. It was like a super passive aggressive move that uh, that's how we were informed that we were excommunicated. They just changed the locks so that none of us could get into the prayer room. And then uh, they released all of us from our callings. They released uh my wife, who had been primary president for 10 years from her calling without even telling her. I had been a Sunday school teacher for the youth for 10 years. They released me, just called somebody else to the position. And so we uh, we found ourselves completely separated because we had invited a Polynesian family into our midst. And it was, it was painful for me because there were members of my family that were on the other side of the split. Okay. But... Um, it was worth it for me because I learned something about Polynesian culture and uh, church history in that regard. And so th that lesson was valuable to me. So uh, years later, uh, the person who had done the DNA test started suggesting that we do the DNA test on ourselves. And um, so uh, so uh, we did a DNA test on on my daughter sent the DNA test. And, uh, uh, and this part sounds a little bit weird, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> but uh, so um, um, after we turned the DNA test, my wife and I went to Utah for a family reunion. And on the way back, we stopped by Rockland Ranch. And at Rockland Ranch, um, we were guests at somebody's house and they put us back. You know, they, This is where they have the homes that are drilled out of the, the rocks. They're basically... Right. So, uh, anyway, uh, they invited us, um, they invited us, um, to stay in one of their back bedrooms. And when I say that this room was dark, it was, there was no windows. You're in a cave. It was 100% black. It was like being in a, um, in a sensory deprivation tank. <laughs> so, uh, that Which night. I've always wanted to do, by the way. I mean that that to me sounds absolutely awesome, but uh, yeah, um, I'd like it too. If I could just get over the claustrophobia thing, yeah. right, right. No, those <laughs> sound cool. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No. So anyway, um, that night I had an experience, uh, one of the only the uh, only experiences that I've had, and I don't know whether it was an angel or a spirit or something, but uh, a woman came to me, 
Um, and I was awake because I sat up in bed for this experience and I touched my eyeballs to make sure I was awake. But uh, there was a woman standing at my bedside dressed in white and she had like a glow around her. And uh, she never said anything to me, but she kept showing me certain scenes. Uh, she showed me several scenes, most of them which I didn't remember, but there were three that I did. And each scene she showed me three times. And the first one was a skull. And then uh, the next one was a room full of people. And you could see people as far back as you could, you know, as far back as the eye could see. And then the next thing she showed me was a line of sand coming out of the sky. And as soon as the sand hit the, hit the ground, it started tracing a spiral pattern. And um, after she showed me each scene, she would look at me with significance. She wouldn't say anything, but she'd give me like a meaningful look like, you get it, you get it, you get what I'm showing you. And uh, so after the experience ended, I wasn't scared. I just turned, I rolled over and went to sleep. And, uh, you know, the next morning, uh, I didn't have any phone range, you know, any cell service in, in the cave. <laughs> so as soon as we left and we're driving down the road, I called a good friend of mine who's really good at dream interpretation. She's not even Mormon. I said, okay, I had this experience. Can you tell me what it means? Can you interpret this for me? And she said, okay. She said, uh, so I said, the skull, that's got to mean death, right? You know, skull means death. And she said, uh, actually, no. She said, that could actually mean knowledge. And I said, okay. I said, what about the room full of people? And she said, that's your ancestors. And I said, okay, the sand coming out of the sky, tracing a spiral pattern on the ground. And she said, oh, that's easy. That's DNA. And I said, huh, okay. So we drove from Rockland Ranch back to Arizona, and we got back right as the sun was starting to set. And, and the first thing is uh, that we did is I pulled up to the house, and the man who had done the DNA test was waiting on the porch with my DNA results in hand. And uh, wow. so I'm like, okay. And when I looked at it, it's like my heart sank because, it, you know, I'm Mexican. Uh, my wife is uh, is Japanese, and um, and uh, and uh, it came up, you know, certain percent Native American, certain percent Asian, and then it came up a certain percent Nigerian. And uh, my heart sank when I saw that, and uh, and uh, I was like, that can't be. I know I hold the priesthood, you know, and. Uh, so I went home that night and uh, I remember I tossed and turned all night, you know, and everything to me at that point felt like a, a lie that, you know, I had, quote, Canaanite blood. And, uh, you know, uh, and of course, mo most Mormon fundamentalists believe in the one drop rule. So I'm th I'm thinking, gosh, you know, everything that I've ever believed is a lie, you know, and uh, and I it went on like that for two nights, two nights I was tossing and turning and just disturbed by this. And, uh, then, uh, then, uh, I started remembering the Lord brought to mind instances in my life where I had experienced directly the priesthood and my use of the priesthood. And I started remembering different things. And, um, and I remember that, uh, some in my family had the attitude, you know, well, the DNA test is wrong because I know I hold the priesthood. And, uh, my attitude was, well, I know I hold the priesthood. Um, 
I know I hold the priesthood because, uh, well, I know uh, that I hold the priesthood in spite of the DNA evidence, even though whether it's true or not true, I know that I hold the priesthood. And so that got me to start to question things. And uh, so, uh, so anyway, um, so what happened in our community is that uh, some in our community started to take a dim view at it. They, they, they wanted to start excluding us from priesthood functions. So we met as a community, every endowed member of our community met together uh, to decide what to do about it. And, um, and uh, we came to the conclusion that um, we should, um, we should, um, until there's evidence one way or the other, that we should be able to continue to function in the priesthood. And, uh, and, uh, but some in the community didn't like that. Some kind of, started trying to take measures to prevent us from participating. And um, so I started, you know, what this did is it created an impetus for me to start studying the the priesthood ban, why it was implemented, how it was implemented. And I found that things are not as we think as far as the priesthood ban. That, uh, like you brought up uh, Walker Lewis and... Um, and um, Elijah Abel, you know, these are men that are very, were very obviously ordained to the priesthood. And, and Elijah Abel functioned in the priesthood way into, uh, way into um, the latter half of the 19th century in Salt Lake. He was still listed in the roles as a 70. It was never, his priesthood was never rescinded. Now, sometimes I also will tell you that it was, but uh, I started researching what happened and I couldn't find any evidence that Joseph Smith had uh, directly taught uh, a restriction on priesthood for the people of the African race. I couldn't find it at all. Um, there were things that I thought had said that, like um, Pearl of Great Price. But uh, the more you examine it, it doesn't say exactly what we think it says. It says uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Pharaoh, who was, you know, the, the son of Egyptus, that he was of that race that was curse pertaining to the priesthood, comma, not having the rights to the priesthood. Um, I used to think that that meant that they had no right at all to hold the priesthood, but that's not what it says at all. If you look at it, it says that they didn't have the rights to the priesthood, which according to Hebraic um, tradition indicates birthright. So they were just not of the birthright lineage, but it doesn't say anything about them being restricted from holding the priesthood. And uh, so I started researching more. I saw that uh, Brigham Young, uh, they had a territorial legislation um, session in 1852 in Utah to try to decide whether or not they were going to continue the slavery. Orson Pratt, who didn't believe in generational curses, um, was fiercely against slavery. And uh, I believe that Brigham Young, when he made that speech in 1852 about the blacks not holding priesthood, that uh, it was a knee-jerk reaction to him being upset with Orson Pratt. I'm convinced of it, that he was just, you know, well, Orson Pratt says this, well, guess what? They can't hold the priesthood. And uh, then uh, you jump forward, uh, I can't remember the year, it's either 1872 or 1874. Um, they revisited it and they did a test case among the saints. And uh, they tried to establish that Joseph Smith had taught it. 
And um, they hinged their testimony around Zebedee Coltrane's testimony. And uh, if you examine Zebedee Coltrane's testimony about Joseph Smith teaching it, he doesn't even say that he heard Joseph Smith teach it. He said that he heard he was going to when he was on his way to uh, Zion's camp in Missouri, that he heard another brother say that Joseph Smith had taught it. So it's hearsay. And uh, in Mormonism, we talk about all things established by the mouth of two or more witnesses. And yet Zebedee Coltrane's hearsay was enough to basically establish this. And my opinion is, you know, I have more questions than I do answers in regard to this. I'm still trying to study this out. I'm still trying to figure it out. But, you know, if the salvation and exaltation of an entire race of people are hinging in the balance, then we deserve it to them and to each other to ask the hard questions and finally put this whole question to the test and have discussions about it. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. We need to talk about it because it's not cut and dry. It's not super clear. No. And and here's where I'm going to go renegade once again, right? If If I'm a guy, that just sits down and looks at the evidence. Yeah. The evidence weighs against this idea of a priesthood and temple ban. It ban. It just does. Um, yeah. I think. I think you're right in the sense that, I think, and this pains me to say because I love Brigham. I, I identify more with Brigham than I can with Joseph because Joseph is like way better than I am. And I can see some faults in Brigham, right? Just cause he's, he, he's short tempered. Like I can be and stubborn that like I can be, yeah. but what you said about a knee jerk reaction totally makes sense. Let's not forget Brigham and Orson are fighting over the Adam God doctrine at this very same moment. Right. Right. And, and we, yeah, have, right. we have to have these conversations because otherwise we're doing what what some of the Lamanites did in the Book of Mormon where we just hold to vain traditions because they're traditions. Yeah. And and I feel like that, that these conversations are crucial. I also think we have to be, you know honest with ourselves and, and our history and looking at it, right? Yeah. And and we have to question with intent of getting the right answer, not the answer we want. Yeah. Because Dude, you're a Renaissance man. <laughs> because as we as we if 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 we start from the supposition of this has always been true and we're going to hold to whatever this is, we will find a way to justify it. I'm walking proof of that. I justified staying in the LDS church way too long with a series of mental gymnastics that would make any gold medalist envious. And and in some, in not in some respects, in every respect, I am where I am now because of a pursuit of truth. Yes. Right? And if that puts me on on the outside looking in, I'll take it. Because I can at least stand before God with a clear conscience and, and say, I didn't buckle. Yeah. Well, on this, I stood. Well, I think if people are offended or 
or unwilling to, to ask the hard questions, then most likely they're not approaching their belief in this from a confident standpoint to begin with. No, no. And, and, and see, that's where I'm at. You know, it's like, I'm think I'm totally independent right now because I don't know, given the results of my DNA tests, if any community would really feel comfortable having me. And I may be, you know, I may be not giving people credit enough, but it's, it's a hard thing to deal with, you know? So. It is. But I, I think you, look, if you came to the same conclusion that, that you talked about, in some ways, Moroni, you are perfectly placed to talk about these things because not yes. only are you a strong Mormon fundamentalist with a lot of knowledge, with a lot of Mormon cred, if you will. But now you've been on the other side of this thing looking in. Yes. Right? That yeah, gives and, you and not you're the just... first person that I've really talked to publicly about this. Well, I appreciate so. that. I really do. I appreciate the vote of confidence. But I think you're uniquely positioned to talk about this, right? Because yeah. you've had to walk that road. So, and, and here's the other thing, right? As, as fundamentalists, we're scattered pretty far and wide, right? Yeah. And so, unlike the LDS church that can just make a policy change and, and you're all good, <laughs> now, now we have to be able to uh, do this by individual. Right, which is what this is really boiling yeah. down to is 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 on a basis by basis family, make the case and then just let it go. Um, like what Brigham Young said, each of us has to stand on our own tub. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and and this is the interesting part of of my journey, and I can only imagine what it was like for you is the fact that, you know, I I come into fundamentalism and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to hold to the truth, right? Yeah. And in and, 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 and fundamentalism, there should be nothing but truth. And then you find, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're holding to some traditions because they were traditions, period. Well, I think that fundamentalists do that a lot. We, we take what uh, Brigham Young says, uh, everything he says is gospel. We take everything Lauren Woolley says or Rulon Allred says, and we forget that they were men and they were capable of error also. You know, we don't need to deify them. We can, uh, you know, uh, uh, we can examine what they said and then decide for ourselves whether we, whether we accept those or not, you know. And I think it's important to realize that, that unlike the LDS Church, we now have the ability to question a few things. Right. Yeah. We we are perfectly positioned to say Brigham Young was a prophet, and it's entirely prop, you know, possible that Brigham Young was wrong on this issue. Yeah. And not. And that's not, precisely where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Be yeah. able to say, okay, this this doesn't hold water from simply a historical standpoint. Right. Right. As fundamentalists, one of the main arguments you always hear is the waters are purest at their source, right? Meaning, no, 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 we're going back all the way to Joseph Smith. Are you? Are you? Really? (laughs) Right? Because then it gets uncomfortable, right? So 
if, if we're going to take that stance, then then we we kind of have to question with a sense of boldness, right? And not be yeah. scared of the answer. Understand it's going to suck, right? Because it may upend some things that, that you believe. Yeah. But it's, but it's totally worthwhile. Yeah, I agree. It's been a long, strange trip. <laughs> I bet. So, so let's talk about that a little bit now. You're in this very unique space where you are, again, your Mormon cred is off the charts, right? You are like, well, you certainly you've been my favorite for a lot of years just because I like the whole angle of the punk well, rock. I don't know about this. Mormon cred, but I'll take it. <laughs> you're very well spoken in your articles. You're very well written. But now you've seen this on the other side. And and you feel like you don't know where you fit. So what's the answer for you? Boy, you're going to have to have me on again when I figure that out because it's a day-by-day thing, you know. Um, I, like I said, I have more questions, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, on what to do next. Um, it's been kind of a lonely journey. Um, I've been to a few communities. and. I've been opened fairly warmly by a lot of these communities, but the question is always in the back of my mind, you know, they're going to find out about this. And of course, especially now that I've done a podcast about it, but you know, how are they going to take it? How are they going to accept it? And in some ways I feel that it's unfair to impose myself on people knowing how they might feel. So it's kind of, it's kind of like stumbling in the dark a little bit, but you know, I need to find my way personally through this and, and like I said, maybe you'll have me back some other time when I got that figured out. Absolutely. Look, I've always said anyone who's come on here before has a standing invitation. You just got to call me. So you, you can always well, come thank back. you. Thanks. And, and dude, I'm more willing to associate with you on anything and everything. Well, I appreciate that. I, I really do. I think the world of you, Moroni, I, I can't stress that enough. You know, and, and, We've talked about some pretty hard things here, right? Especially at the end, as you shared your story, which is, dude, I'm I'm honored you did it on this podcast. Um, yeah. And I'm going to be talking about this at Sunstone. Too. Are you? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to be talking on this very topic with Christina Rossetti, who she's a uh, Mormon studies professor from Dixie College or Dixie University, I guess it is now. Right. And right uh, she's, she just wrote a paper on this topic also. So it, uh, we figured that both of us could probably bring some light to this subject and that we would uh, complement each other as far as our presentation. So I don't know what day yet, but it's going to be at, at the symposium at some point. Right. So, should. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, my battery's about ready to die, so okay. I we well, probably need to wrap it up. Yep, so. let me wrap it up. So Moroni... Dude, again, I can't tell you how much it means that you were here, and then you you bore your soul here, dude. I mean that Thanks. that I've always said that takes the biggest set of nuts, bar none, is to throw your voice out there in the ether, and you know have it heard by people, and your name alone is going to draw folks. So, so I I really appreciate what you did there. I, that's well, that's thank me. you. You know, it's taken me five years. It's taken me five years to get to the point where I could talk about this. Well, I'm I'm honored it was here, and it doesn't speak highly enough 
of the courage that, that you just showed. It's huge. All right, everybody. Bye. Bye.